Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to another special episode. This time, we're taking a deep dive into the SEC's proposed rule on climate change disclosures, which they released on March 21st. Companies really, once they've gone through that process of looking at the proposal and thinking about what those issues might be, start to figure out how they're going to respond. Likely, these rules will come out and will be effective. I do think the preparation now and at least taking inventory based on what's in the proposal uh, is probably a best practice. Those are my guests, Kyle Moffat and Val Weeman, partners in our national office, who will give us an initial look at some of the key provisions of the climate proposal. It's 500 plus pages, so more to come on additional podcasts in April. But stay tuned today to get a preview of some of the key issues you may want to consider as you evaluate the proposal. Val, Kyle, welcome. Looking forward to our conversation about something that I feel like we've been talking about actually for more than a year since we saw then Acting Commissioner Allison Lee's request for comment or invitation for comment on uh, proposed climate disclosures back in March of last year. So we finally saw the proposal this week on March 21, coming out of the SEC, 506 pages, 201 comments. And definitely today we're going to get into a lot of the detail. We're going to talk about some context, process, everything else. But start off, what I'm probably most curious about, and I'll give mine as well, is what surprised you the most about the proposal. And Kyle, I'll go to you first. I'd say the fact that it's going to apply to all public companies, the fact that they did not separately call out, you know, companies that were entering into the reporting system, right? So companies that, um, you know, either they're triggering their number of shareholders threshold to have to start reporting or uh, they, they opt to go public and, and raise capital. The fact that, that those companies will be scoped in, um, including emerging growth, growth companies, I think that is what probably surprised me most. Val? Um, probably first is the sheer heft, um, as you said. Um, I think a little surprised that it came, you know, seven days after the cyber proposal. Um, so we're working on both fronts. But um, as far as the proposal itself, um, I'm, I think we expected it to be a lot of 10K disclosures. I'm not sure that I thought they would end up with footnote disclosures. And obviously, we'll get into that. Um, but I thought that they would stay outside of the financial statements. All right. And I just for clarity for our audience, it was 12 days after the cyber proposal. So <laughs> definitely give us a lot of extra time there in terms of being able to respond to both. And then I think from my perspective, and we'll get into this some more, what surprised me the most was the fact that scope three was included. And, you know, people who have been working with greenhouse gas for some time, as they're aware, you know, scope one and two, it's clear definitions, and it's not necessarily, I'm not going to say it's easy to measure, but I think it's clearer how to measure. I think as soon as you get into scope three, there's a lot of questions very fast. And so if we think about how investors use information and the reliance they put on audited information, and then you throw something like scope three into that mix, it I, I just think there's going to be some reconciliation that needs to be done. So we'll get into to that some more, but um, definitely I also agree with you guys. I was surprised by what you brought up as well. So with that as a backdrop and hopefully entice our audience a little to hear what more we have to say, uh, Kyle, maybe starting with you, obviously, as I said, 506 pages, this is a huge undertaking. And I think we started talking about this in particular and timing last summer, saying first October, then, I don't know, maybe we said November, but definitely before the holidays, January, you know, and then we finally, I think, stopped giving a date. So why now? And can you give us some overall context? Definitely a, a long time coming. Um, I think it's, you know, obviously it's something that has been on the radar of uh, not just investors for a while, but also commissions, uh, the commissioners. And so 
um, this it, this is not new. Um, the the focus um, go all the way back to the to the 1970s when the you know the true first climate related disclosures were put out there, um, and and then fast forward up through 2010, the SEC's guidance that that they published, um, commission guidance on um, you know essentially the climate related risk disclosures and essentially the the you know, impact of the existing SEC uh, disclosure requirements. So, you know, obviously all principles based. Um, and then, you know, over that period of time since 2010, um, you know, comments here and there um, from the, the SEC, mostly focused on particular industries, um, it, but it's definitely not an area that the SEC spent a lot of time focused on, um, you know, and, and so I'd say then, you know, we fast forward to when Allison Lee, was you know acting chair and obviously we've talked a lot about it but um, the, her request for input uh, the number of statements that she's had on climate um, you know the interest from capitol hill um, from senators warren and sanders on the topic the biden administration being focused on it so you know really no surprise that that gensler from day one um, has has you know he made it a priority um, he you know he basically backed the request for for, for input from that that uh, Allison Lee posted at the time. Um, and then he also directed the staff to essentially, you know, not only work on a rulemaking, right? He put it on the agenda, but then to also, you know, review and potentially issue comments um, to, to companies. So um, definitely a, a lot of activity. Um, they are focused on it at all levels of the, the agency. So the review program in Court Fin is focused on it. You have the enforcement division focused on greenwashing. Um, you know, investment management's focused on it. So um, it is definitely a, one of those areas where uh, the SEC, at least Gensler, is leaving no stone unturned. Which, Kyle, I think it's great that they finally got it done. Clearly, it was a, a pretty monumental and long-term effort to try to get it out the door. Um, but it's not without its controversies. So it was not a unanimous vote uh, when they actually voted on whether to release the proposal. Uh, they did have uh, Commissioner Hester Peirce was the dissenting vote, um, and she had a, a lengthy statement at the uh, the actual meeting uh, and then actually posted a 15-page dissent uh, that you can see her comments online. Um, but her primary concerns related to the fact that there are existing rules. So you referred to the 2010 guidance where they really highlight how the existing rules are designed to elicit some of the climate. So that there are already rules that cover material climate risks and that those should already be included. Uh, she had some concerns about materiality and straying a little bit from what has been the, you know, the Supreme Court definition, the securities law definition about what's material to an investor. Uh, I think, uh, as well as some of the guidance in MDNA, where you talk about seeing the company through the eyes of management. Uh, so she expressed some concerns that this was seeing sort of the company through the eyes of investors, through the eyes of the SEC. Uh, I think that the title of her speech was actually that we're not the uh, Securities and Environmental Commission. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, she did add in the yet. Um, and then I think she also had some concerns about whether it would elicit the right disclosures and increase the comparability, which is what it was designed to do, as well as the cost factor. Yeah, and I think what is interesting, too, on that, Val, is that she, even she, at the end, did say if it came down to effort, she would be in support because she recognized the amount of time and effort that had gone into this from the staff. And I, I did, I don't know if that's a common thing for them to say, Kyle, but when they dissent, but I did think that was interesting that she made such a point of saying that. One other thing I just want to touch on, uh, Kyle, that you mentioned were the comments we've been seeing on the existing climate disclosures. And that's something we've talked about webcasts, past podcasts. But I do want to point out for the audience that we actually did update our publication that we have out there that talks about those requirements, as well as what we've seen coming out of the comment letters that have been made public. And that got updated and issued yesterday, so March 24th. So I do encourage people to look for that so they can kind of still keep focus on their current disclosures, and we'll make sure we include uh, a link to that in the show notes. So um, th one, one thing, Heather, I'd add, yeah. add to that is, <clears throat> look, if people should not ignore, you know, that publication, they should not ignore the, the comments that were issued, because, you know, I fully expect that the, the SEC, Corkfin is going to continue to issue comments. So, 
you know, they're, they're not going to stop until, you know, there is a new role that's effective and in place. Um, but I imagine that they're going to be continuing to monitor disclosures and continuing to, to look at the sustainability reports and the 10Ks and essentially, you know, comparing the two disclosures uh, to disclosure documents and, and potentially issuing comments. So um, definitely something I think that, that people need to have on their list this year, just evaluating and, you know, their reporting under both, making sure there's consistent messaging. From yeah, I would say, oh, sorry, Heather, it's, uh, I think that's really important because there are going to be for some companies, you know, two, three or four more 10Ks filed before the new rules would take effect. Um, so I think it's an important reminder that they can't really stop focusing on the existing rules in anticipation of the new ones. All right, so let's get into then the new rules. And I I think for most of our audience, they've seen at least the headlines about the new rules. And if they haven't, at a minimum, I would encourage you to look at the SEC's fact sheet. We'll make sure to also link that in our show notes. Um, I would encourage you as well to look at the statements of the commissioners. But I did think just to level set for this discussion, let's hit some of the high points and then we're going to go into some of the areas where we think there's more questions. So Kyle, start with you. High level, what's in the proposal? Well, we, we, we talked about the number of pages um, that are in the proposal. We've talked about the number of questions, although uh, I saw by one count by, of a law firm that even though there were 200 plus questions, there were essentially 800 or more uh, questions within um, the, the initial 200 questions. So um, that that's obviously some some light reading um, for, well, for us uh, this weekend, right? Yeah, uh, and so I'm going to chime in there to say I think Val and I are deliberately ignoring the fact that there's 800 since we, with your help, will be the ones writing PwC's letter. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> carry on. So so look, I you know it's it's I will say that the commission in this proposal. You know, their aim is is really at enhancing, you know, public company disclosures related to risks and impact, you know, essentially the even the, the opportunities presented by uh, climate change. So, um, you know, and, and I think, th- as I mentioned, it, it's going to apply to all public companies. Um, you know, it, there will be um, disclosures required with respect to climate related risks that, you know, have had or are likely to have, um, which which I think is is a key point to highlight are likely to have um, a material impact on its business um, and on its uh, financial statement. So, um, and the focus is, is not is not just on the short term, but it's evaluating the short, the medium and the long term. And so we'll get into kind of what that means, which I think we don't know what that necessarily means, um, and, including how they're likely to impact the, the registrants, essentially their, their strategy, their, uh, their model, business model, their outlook, um, and so that that's that's probably the, the biggest kind of, you know, the high level piece of the narrative, I guess, or qualitative disclosures. Um, but then also you you see that there will be uh, a requirement to provide details about the governance. Right. And so um, thinking about, you know, the board's oversight, um, you know, the, the risk management processes in place um, with respect to climate related risk at the management level. So, so really a lot to unpack there with respect to the governance aspect of just like cyber, um, that that is, it's no surprise that's a, a heavy focus. Um, but then also, you know, yet you do have this uh, requirement, uh, not just for uh, climate related metrics to be disclosed in the financial statements, but also the, the disclosure of, of the greenhouse gas emissions. So carbon emissions outside the financial statements um, essentially, scope one, uh, your indirect or your direct, your scope two, your indirect um, emissions, and then scope three, um, you'd be required if, uh, in fact, that, that you believe it's material. Again, federal securities laws definition of materiality. So I think that's going to be a challenge. But um, but then also, um, you know, if you've used scope three in in your target, so if you made public commitments of, to be net zero, and that's inclusive of, of scope one, two, and three then you would be required to disclose scope three. So a lot to unpack, definitely a lot to unpack there. And I think in addition, Kyle, what you have is those are the disclosures that are 
uh, needed in the registration statements and in 10Ks and, and generally the outside of the financial statements. And I referred to it earlier um, about what's actually required in the financial statements. So there is some disclosure that would be required. Uh, they have a requirement for disaggregated client-related, sorry, climate-related financial statement metrics. Uh, and they describe those as mainly being derived from the existing financial statement line items. Uh, and those are in a couple of categories. There's a lot of detail there as well. Uh, the financial impact metrics. So those are the impact of severe weather, other natural conditions. Um, and those uh, weather events and natural conditions, they do refer to the 2010 guidance that delineates the types of events. Although now they've added in wildfires, uh, which Heather as a, a California resident would appreciate. Um, mm -hmm. And then they've also uh, talked about transition activities uh, that are identified climate risks and the impact they have on the financial statement line items. So the three categories that they're talking about are the metrics. Then they also talk about expenditures. So any of the costs that companies are incurring that are capitalized or expensed in reaction to those climate events, um, as well as uh, their transition activities. And then finally, uh, the impact that climate-related events have had on a company's financial estimates and assumptions. So how is it impacting how they're generating the financial statements? And all of that would be required in the footnotes, which I don't think it's going to be lost on our uh, listeners that uh, that means it's a different control environment, right? So anything in the footnotes are going to be covered by your internal control over financial reporting, whereas anything outside is subject to sort of your disclosure controls and procedures. So a, a different level and a different set of scrutiny over the numbers that would be in the footnotes. I think that's important, Val, because I, I you know, when thinking about if I'm a CFO, CEO, and I have to certify as to the effectiveness, right, of, of disclosure controls and procedures, um, you know, I'm signing this document. Um, I, I want to be comfortable with with the controls that are in place, right? I want to make sure that any information that's going to be required to be disclosed, not not obviously with respect to the footnotes, it's you know that that's that's obvious. I think though, outside of the footnotes is is going to be key in making sure that they're they are comfortable with what they're reporting um, out to to the public. Uh, I, I'd say the other thing that surprised that that was a pleasant surprise for me. Um, with respect to this, and it's, it's worth mentioning, is just the fact that they are leveraging the TCFD disclosure framework. So I, I don't know if you guys, um, I'm sure that you were happy to see that too, right? Because I think companies, especially Heather, your you know former industry, that they're more comfortable dealing in that space, right? They're, they they understand it. it. It's generally globally accepted. So um, I thought that was. Um, another item to point out with respect to, to the proposing release. Well, and I think to that point, Kyle, something that will be of interest, particularly to multinational companies, is that we already see the TCFD framework, for example, that's being used in the UK. We know that's going to be you know, considered when the ISSB is putting together its standards. We know it's also being considered as part of the CSRD effort. So hopefully, you know, with these three sort of parallel efforts, we'll see at least some commonality if they're all incorporating at least some elements coming from TCFD. So more to come. And I, I will share as a um, I guess harbinger that we will be issuing a document sometime later in April that will actually try to at least start comparing those different proposals just to start to get people grounded in what's going on in those, those different work streams. But sticking to the SEC proposal, which we're planning to talk about today, as I mentioned, I think Val and Kyle gave some good highlights there. Definitely check out the fact sheet and then, you know, at least flip the broad proposal, particularly if you're going to be the one making these disclosures or helping to put the controls in place, as Val pointed out. But Val, Timing is a big thing here. So can you talk a, a bit about the transition? And I would encourage people to listen very carefully because there are different dates and categories depending what type of filer you are. Yeah, so it comes in a lot of different buckets. And the assumption uh, when you go into the timeline is that this will be finalized this year. So I think that does give a bit of a sense to the priority that the SEC has made this project that um, we do expect that there'll be a final rule available. So uh, on the assumption that we'll have a final rule at by the end of 2022, which uh, to be honest, in the 
proposal, they actually say, assuming the rule is finalized in December. And I think that's going to be key because the first tranche that would be required to comply would be the large accelerated filers. So they would need to capture the information for 2023, and then that would be included in their filing in 2024. So for their 2023 10K. So if you think about it, you have a uh, you know a, a final rule that's in December of 2022 and beginning a month later, you need to start capturing the data for your year-end disclosures. All right, Val, I'm going to jump in for a second here because I've looked at the table and listening with all these years floating around, it's kind of hard to uh, keep get my wrap my head around what it what year it actually is going to be required. So let's take your example, the large accelerated filer, and then we'll get to the other filing categories. So these disclosures would be effective starting January 1, 2023. And I know that there's some comparative requirements. And I think that's one of the areas that there may be some questions that we can get into in more detail later. But putting aside any comparatives, January 1, 2023, and then what, Val? So 2023, so that would be your 10K that you file in 2024 um, for large accelerated filers. And that would be for all of the proposed disclosures, including your greenhouse gas scope one and scope two, but excluding your scope three disclosures. So for large accelerated filers, those would come in one year later. So again, in their 2024 10K filed in 2025, large accelerated filers would then need to include their scope three metrics um, and some associated intensity metrics kind of per production um, at that point. And then for accelerated filers and non-accelerated filers, those are on a one-year lag from the large accelerated filers. And then just lastly, um, I think as Kyle uh, referred to in the beginning, smaller reporting companies are required to comply with all of the disclosures except for the scope three. So uh, smaller reporting companies would have an additional year, so two years after the large accelerated filers, but they would not then need to follow up uh, with any of the greenhouse gas scope three required disclosures. All right. So 2023, well, we're going to use calendar on companies. So January 1, 2023, large accelerated filer, January 1, 2024 for accelerated filers and non-accelerated filers, and then January 1, 2025 for smaller reporting companies. But That's then correct. Val, I know another big piece people are going to be interested in is the assurance. How does that fit in here? Okay, so the assurance is also on a lag and applies to different categories. So the assurance requirement on your greenhouse gas emissions are only going to apply to your large and your accelerated filers. Now for large accelerated filers, they will have, as you just said, their initial reporting in their 2023 10K of your scope one and two emissions. Now, they would be required to get limited assurance on that disclosure beginning in their 2024 10K. They would have the same limited assurance required in their 2025 10K. And then they would actually transition, according to the proposal, to reasonable assurance. So further control in their 2026 10K. All right. And then accelerated filers like that by, by one year. year in each category, correct? Right. So on, on the one hand, it's if I'm listening, I'm thinking, oh, that's like four years from now. Like I've got time. On the other hand, as you start to dig into this, it's actually not that much time. So Val, one thing I want to point out before we go on is that may, I'm sure many of our listeners would have sort of honed in on the limited assurance versus reasonable assurance. I'm going to be very simplistic, and then we're going to, we'll cover this in more detail in one of our future podcasts, which we will be doing some more on this proposal. So reasonable assurance is what companies, investors, everyone would be familiar with. That's the opinion that companies are receiving on their financial statements. The uh, independent registered accounting firms are providing reasonable assurance on those. Limited assurance is a bit different in that it's what's considered negative assurance. And simplistically, what that means is that what they're saying is that nothing has come to their attention to indicate that there's an issue with it. Again, that's a very simplistic explanation. We'll get into more detail. But I think what's important here, companies have a little time, right? Because there's a delay, then you only have to get limited, then you get ready for reasonable. But to the points that's been made before, they still do have to have their own disclosure controls and procedures over these numbers. And I don't think companies are going to want to be in a position where 
oh, well, we're only getting limited assurance. We're not going to do as much ourselves. And then, you know, you find out you have issues later. So definitely an area of focus. And one, as I said, I think we'll hit on more in a future podcast. So Heather, when you talk about assurance, companies are currently probably the most popular is that limited assurance companies are receiving on their scope one and their scope two emissions currently. Um, the thing I wanted to point out, though, is the the word they use in the proposal are verifiers. So the company that's verifying the emissions doesn't actually have to be the auditor, um, but they do need to be an entity that follows professional standards. They do need to be independent, as well as have significant experience measuring, analyzing, reporting, or testing to the greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that said, uh, companies would have to disclose on top of those requirements, they'd have to include a disclosure as to whether the verifier or the attest provider has a license to provide assurance, uh, whether they're subject to any oversight, and if they're subject to any record keeping requirements. Now, from an oversight standpoint, obviously, registered public accounting firms with the PCOB as a regulator um, would qualify under the requirement, but it is something that companies maybe maybe, want to mention or talk to their providers about. So let's jump in, as I mentioned, to some of the bigger, I'll call them issues or or areas of focus as companies are trying to figure out out of all of this, what should they be focused on right now? And one of the ones I mentioned up front was, you know, greenhouse, the disclosures around greenhouse gas emissions value clearly just ran through the fact that that's the part that will require a test, you know, um, for at least some filers. And Kyle, if, if, you know, we start to look at this, companies would have to disclose scope one and two, which again, can be quite challenging, but it also requires scope three. And I'll just share anecdotally, I was on a call this morning with two power and utilities partners. So clearly people who are quite familiar and have been, you know, working with greenhouse gas emissions for some time. And even the three of us started debating and couldn't, clearly come to consensus on some, you know, specific aspects of this. So I know there's a lot to cover here. What are some of your initial thoughts? Well, you know, obviously when, when kind of the starting point, right. With, with all of this is going to be what what companies are already doing today. Right. And, and trying to make sure that they're, you know, ramping up, I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge, at least with respect to, you know, scope three is, is just, calculating it right and figuring out what should be included um and and going through that process who's qualified to do it right and um i think that that's that to me is is the first it's gonna be the first question for a lot of companies out there who who haven't been you know dealing with these types of disclosures in the past even even though they're outside of a a 10k filing um but you know you you look at you know scope one you know, yes, you, those are direct emissions of, of GHG, including CO2. You, scope two are the indirects, but scope three is so broad. Um, and so layer in all of the, you know, let's say employee costs, travel costs, employee commuting, um, your purchase goods. Um, it's such a broad category um, that, you know, and, you know, I wouldn't say that, that the SEC provide a lot of insight as to who would be required to, to disclose it, right? I mean, even though they say, hey, if you're a large accelerator filer, you should disclose, but it says you should disclose if material um, or if used in some sort of uh, goal that you have. So we talked about it before, net zero, if you said that's your goal and, and you've not been specific about what's included in there, I think generally the SEC would probably expect that that would include scope one, two, and three and that you'd be required to disclose your scope three emissions. Um, this is one where I think there's gonna be the most pressure, um, whether this ends up in the in the final rule, it'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, obviously there is the safe harbor with respect to that calculation, so so at least there's that. Um, but, you know, that's a, you know, scope three is is just such a difficult area. You know, you know had a call, a couple of calls yesterday with, with clients, um, you know, talking about the challenge and even, you know, the, the fact you'd have to disclose it. It's just I mean, most people feel that it's it's double and, and triple counting. Um, and so the process one goes through to actually calculate is, is pretty, pretty complex. Um, you know, they, they actually don't give a, a quantitative threshold as to what would be material. So that's the other area that 
that I think people will struggle with. They, they do have some, um, you know, note in there that that some people or some companies use 40 percent uh, to, to determine materiality. But then they say you necessarily can't really necessarily you know rely on the quantitative. Um, and so um, it, as you think about materiality, it's the total mix of information. So the federal securities laws definition of materiality. And so you have to look at the quantitative and the qualitative. Uh, and it's almost like you got to walk through a sad 99 analysis to figure out whether an investor would, would think it's important. Um, and so, I, you know, and then, then finally, there's the, the linkage uh, to its inclusion in mission targets or net zero commitment. Some of the questions that, that I think people are asking is, um, you know, if you make a commitment within scope three, let's say you, uh, you know, have one particular item within scope three that you have a commitment uh, to be net zero. Well, does that trip the disclosure requirement for all scope three uh, greenhouse gas emissions? Or if you make the commitment once, does that then uh, bind you and, and require you for, you know, for the next, you know, however many years, right? Does it bind you to actually start reporting scope three? Um, even if, let's say, it was an internal target, you talked about it publicly, uh, mentioned it a couple times, um, you know, you've said it's 2050 is the date. Does that really mean you have to start reporting scope three? Um, so I think that those are at least when I think about the challenges, they, these are the reasons why this this topic will get the most pressure, I think, from from commenters. And I think, Kyle, um, we've already gotten the question from some companies uh, who are thinking about how do you roll back a commitment that you made, <laughs> that they're a little intimidated by the enhanced disclosures. Um, but I think companies are going to respond in sort of two ways. And I'm, I'm a little interested to see which way is sort of the prevailing one. Um, one of them is that uh, companies who have not already made commitments may be hesitant to do so because of the enhanced disclosure requirement. They can still be committed to the environment. They can still talk about what they want to accomplish, but uh, without having a, a firm target or you know a mention of a specific number or a timeline, uh, I think that they may look at it and say you know a little less specificity may mean that they don't need the detail in their filings. On the other hand, I think it's designed to really highlight for investors who has made these commitments and who has these commitments to the environment and uh, climate matters. So it may, on the other hand, serve to encourage companies who have not made a formal commitment, who if their peers have, now that you have a required disclosure to include it and in tracking toward your progress, that it may actually encourage, which I think is probably what they were hoping for, uh, almost a sort of shame them into making a public disclosure. Uh, so it may enhance the number of companies who want to make a, a formal commitment. Yeah. So maybe the one other thing I'd add here is the fact that, you know, we keep talking about GHG and the proposal does reference the greenhouse gas protocol, which I think is used by pretty much all companies right now who are making disclosures wherever they're making them. But what's interesting about that is that it has not been updated for some time. So even something like leases, the way it refers to leases is under the old accounting guidance, not our you know new accounting guidance. And so there's some things like that that's going to be interesting to think about the SEC is referencing something outside the SEC sort of laws or rules. And if there's not a protocol for those to be updated, how is that going to fit in? Or is the SEC going to need to update them or otherwise? So I don't want to get more into that today, but that is, I think, another question that, that's out there and something companies may want to think about, at, you know, as as they're considering this. Also would recommend that you pull that greenhouse gas protocol and look at it as you're starting to think about this if you haven't already done so. So definitely, I think we've talked enough about uh, GHG. Kyle, want to highlight any other challenges? I mean, there's challenges. There's a lot of challenges. I think, you know, we, we've talked about materiality as being a, a I think, a, a huge challenge. It's always a challenge with respect to any disclosures. Um, I think, you know, it, it's not, you know, any anytime you have transition um, reporting, right? Like, so the, the requirement that, you know, over time you're, you're doing this phased in reporting, there's a lot of challenges with just how do you do it, right? How do you think about the prior periods presented in the filing, let's say in the financial statements? Do you have to present all the metrics that are required um, once you are you know, under mandatory compliance with this new rule? Do you have to present every, um, every period in your footnotes with respect to those metrics? Um, you know, what about you know, greenhouse gas emissions with respect to prior periods? I think, I think it's, it's 
not entirely clear um, what you'd have to report. I, I think some would say that they read it to mean you, all periods presented um, for scope one and two, but I think there'll be a lot of questions on that. Um, and say the the other, you know, observation, I you know, is just the definitions of, of various terms that are being used, right? And so some of the, the terms, um, you know, I wasn't entirely familiar with, um, but then you see, you know, conversations about transition plans. Um, what in fact do they even mean? Um, how do you interpret that? Internal carbon pricing, you know, there are many others. Um, I'd say the other, I think, challenge will be, you know, any scenario analysis that companies um, are, are, are currently doing or will be doing, um, you know, what types of disclosures? I mean, it seems like that could be pretty voluminous uh, disclosure um, and, and I think challenging probably for, for uh, the investor to, to understand. So um, th that's another area I think that there's going to be, I think practice will evolve, hopefully practice evolves, um, but I imagine I'll get a lot of pressure um, in, in the comment process. Um, the, the other thing I just say is, you know, you mentioned this before, Val, um, I think about just shaming people into disclosures, right? I mean, that that's essentially ultimately what you get with requirements to disclose whether you have an oversight function or not at the board or management, how management deals with these issues. And so if you look at kind of those requirements, they're pretty prescriptive. And I think companies um, are going to have to look at that and figure out, do they need to, you know, actually develop policies? Do they need to assign more staff? Do they need board uh, expertise in, in some of these topics? Um, because they now have this this new disclosure requirement. And, you know, you don't want to be that company that does not have, um, you know, people dedicated or experts to, to deal with these issues um, when maybe your peers uh, might have those people in place. Yeah. And I think how it's interesting to me is you mentioned here sort of these different terms that are used. And one that definitely jumped out for me, given my background, is to talk about using renewable energy credits. But they actually define renewable energy credits in a way that is not how a lot of companies use them. I think it may be how utilities use them, but many companies will buy these renewable energy credits, which is basically simplistically that you are sort of buying that one megawatt of green energy was was generated and that you're the one who gets to take credit for it. So someone else might get the power, but you get to take credit for the fact that there was this green energy. And frequently what we'll see is someone who's in an area without a lot of solar or wind or other types of renewables will actually buy recs in a different area and then say they're using those towards their net zero goal. However, in this guidance, it's specific that it would be uh, recs that you buy in your control area, which is basically the part of the power grid that your company or factory or whatever else is located on. So not to get into a total tirade here about renewable energy credits, although I, I'm not sure I ever really expected to see those discussed in some SEC rules, but I, it is something that, you know, that's just one small piece, but that definition actually could make a big difference for a lot of companies. And so, you know, that's where even though it's you know 500 plus pages, 200 plus comments, I think a lot of people are going to be reading articles, listening to podcasts like this, and you know the other ones we're going to have coming out. I can't encourage enough companies that are going to be impacted, which is all public companies, as we've talked about, to actually start a process on your own to you know divide and conquer or whatever you want to do, but really look at this and, and pick up the things that matter most to you as a company. This is not necessarily one that you can just kind of wait and see what's going to happen. Val, anything from your perspective? I think, Heather, I, I agree with everything that you said. And I think um, a lot of companies right now would be focused on sort of gathering reporting and looking at the proposals. Um, I think that while they may change, uh, obviously, it's just a proposal. I, I wouldn't expect huge changes in what the requirements are. So I think it probably... Uh, Companies will be well served to kind of take a look at it and start doing an inventory of what they have, uh, what they have access to, what they can collect um, because of the time frame that we discussed earlier. But uh, from a common letter standpoint, the proposal, uh, the responses to the proposal actually do uh, 
ostensibly May 20th. It's the later, it may be 30 days after published in the Federal Register, but I would expect May 20th is probably when the, the due date is. And then I think it's just a question of what happens next. All right. So to that question, Kyle, let's go to you, given your background from the SEC. What does happen next? What's the process after people submit their comment letters? Probably the most important piece to highlight is that the staff does read the comment letters that are submitted, right? And so um, they, you know, have to read through them. They, what they do is they, them, they'll publish them. So if if people are interested, they can go to the SEC's website and, and look for that proposal. Um, and then once comments start coming in, they will start publishing them. And they, they you know, they pretty much do it uh, real time. So if you send one in, let's say yesterday, it likely get posted, you know, a couple of days. Um, so that, that's kind of the first thing is that you can monitor what people are saying as, as they go. Um, but the SEC will go through the process of reading all the comments. They will meet with, um, you know, stakeholders. They'll meet with companies. They'll meet with whomever they need to, to, to make a, an informed kind of policy decision. Um, and they'll start drafting. Um, once they get all the comments, the comment period closes, um, they will start drafting the, uh, the final rules um, and essentially um, put that up for commission vote. I imagine this summer should be very busy for a number of folks because um, you, you could see clearly that they've involved OCA. Obviously, they've involved their general counsel's office, um, but it, you have the office of chief accountant, you have the division of corporation finance, you have the division of economic risk and analysis who works on the cost benefit analysis. And so a lot of work obviously went into this proposal. I imagine an equal or, or you know, higher level of work amount of work is going to be required for the, for the final final rule. Um, but I think we could see something that is uh, adopted by by the end of the year. Um, you know, they put in there an example using December 2022. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they get this done before midterm elections. All right. And then, Kyle, I, I know we all read the same newspapers or, you know, in the news. Clearly, there's already been talk about legal challenges. Any thoughts or any precedent we can kind of look back to where we've seen legal challenge previously? Yeah, I think I think we will see legal challenges. We saw the the West Virginia attorney general uh, had essentially sent in uh, a letter last year indicating they would sue. Um, uh, I think that we'll see others um, sue the SEC. Um, the, and yes, they've you know, that's happened in the past. Um, resource extraction is probably the best um, example of it. That was a, a rule that the Dodd-Frank Act actually required. And you think back, that was like 2010. Um, and so um, that was something that got, you know, essentially proposed, got adopted, um, but then it got challenged in the courts um, and it got vacated by the courts. I mean, it was just a whole host of, of things that occurred to that one. Um, ultimately, the final rule was adopted in 2020. Um, so, so almost 10 years later, um, where you actually see that the that it was finalized, and interestingly, it's on a chair Gensler's agenda to to maybe revisit it. So, it just tells you that the Democrats uh, did not like what had ultimately been adopted, um, and so that'll be interesting to kind of see what happens with that one. I I don't know if climate will follow a similar path, but it's definitely to be challenged in the courts. And but obviously, the the biggest issue is is kind of what Hester Peirce. Uh, highlighted in her statement, a uh, dissenting statement we've talked about a bit is just the First Amendment challenges that, that we expect to see. So, Kyle, just uh, so there's no doubt in our listeners' mind, are you suggesting that they have till 2032 before they need to to worry about this? I, you know, I, I think that's a great question. I've gotten that question of, hey, should we should we just wait until we see what happens? I mean, I would definitely recommend against waiting. Um, that's, that's, <laughs> you know, the the you know, hope is, is not an option, right? Like, I just don't think you sit and hope that that this the can't get kicked down the road. Um, and I think most companies realize that there is a heightened expectations from you know institutional investors, um, their their individual investors, right? The retail investors, um, you know, uh, others. Obviously, the the hill has been pushing this agenda for a while. And it's interesting, you know, will be um, to see what happens with the midterm elections and, and whether that does influence kind of the outcome. If, if it does, you know, if the House or the Senate reverts, 
you know, to uh, Republicans, then does that then, um, you know, introduce any complexities with respect to some of these rules? So um, I don't think so. I think Gensler, they still have the majority, in, you know, at the commission, but they could get more pressure um, if, if there's a change. All right. So two question, follow on questions to that. So we started with the fact that there were three in favor. And then obviously we've talked about the one dissent and there's only four commissioners right now. And we've also seen the announcement that commissioner Allison Lee has announced her departure and that's going to occur before these rules are finalized. So that actually you're now down to three commissioners, depending on how fast, you know, they can get two new ones confirmed. So how does that dynamic fit into all of this? So a couple of things. So, so first they still would have three and they would still have the majority. So it would be a two to one vote likely. Uh, so Crenshaw likely will support Gensler and, and, and he's not going to put something up for final uh, for adoption if, if he doesn't have you know, her support. Right. So, um, or ex at least expect her, you know, that he has her support. Um, but I think what what we expect, um, typically what you see when um, you have, you know, a vacancy. Right. And, and then, you know, you know, you now have another vacancy. Um, you have a, a Democratic vacancy potentially down the road. Right. With Lee stepping down. And then you have uh, Roisman's former commissioner Roisman's Republican vacancy. Um, they likely are, are going. The reason why she probably announced it was so that they could put up, uh, you know, two individuals at the same time. And it might be a little bit easier to get them through and get them confirmed by the Senate. And so um, that's what we expect to see. Um, now, when that will happen, um, you know, hopefully in the next a few months, um, I think having a full commission is is good for investors. It's good for companies. Um, you want as many people, um, as many bright people on these rulemakings as possible um, voting on this. So um, I would expect that, that we'd see something in the next few months. Um, it's interesting. There are a lot of names being thrown 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 around uh, about who might take those uh, positions. So, um, so when you start to see names, I think that's when people start to assume that that it is being discussed and it, you know, hopefully is is imminent. All right. And then one other question on this, Kyle, that actually I've already gotten a couple times is: Is that SEC? the final say here, other than obviously the legal challenge that we already talked about. So obviously there's the legal path and I guess ultimately could go up to the Supreme Court, but assuming it's upheld by the courts or whatever is upheld by the courts, is there anyone else who can quote unquote stop the SEC? I, mean, I guess con congressional action could, um, right? Like if if they were to step in and, and undo, right? It would, it would probably require some sort of congressional action. I mean, there there is... But depending on timing, you do have the ability with some some requirements that they can be vacated by um, the, the next kind of administration. So, you know, but that don't that wouldn't necessarily apply in this situation if they get it if they get it adopted in, in you know, by the end of this year, um, it's going to be in place. And, you know, compliance date will be really, I think, only upheld if if the courts, uh, you know, or, or delayed would be if the courts um essentially are, are pulled into this um, the commission gets sued or if, if there's congressional action, but I, I can't think of anything else that would, would hold up. Uh, so it's, it's, it's one, I think, and you know, that registrants need to be getting ready uh, to, to, to deal with. All right. Definitely a good reminder. So there's plenty more questions. And as I said earlier in the podcast, we are going to be releasing some podcasts in subsequent weeks. Next week, look for a podcast on some of the accounting issues coming from the Russian government invasion in Ukraine. But then following that, we're going to come back and, and revisit this over the, the following few weeks. So for today, maybe just some final thoughts of what you would tell companies to do now, you know, sort of where to start with this proposal. And Val, I'll go to you first. I think that we need to unpack the proposal. I think, you know, even among the three of us, there's a lot of details in there that we need to evaluate. Um, some things that, you know, the three of us agree on and somewhere we're looking at it saying we're not really sure what it means. So I think I would encourage companies to take a look. And if they do feel strongly about something, they should consider submitting a letter if they're I think that there's something that's either uh, not feasible, not helpful, um, or even just not clear on what the requirement is. Uh, so I think writing a letter makes sense. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, to Kyle's point that uh, there will be, you know, 
likely that these rules will come out and will be effective. I do think the preparation now and at least taking inventory based on what's in the proposal uh, is probably a best practice. Kyle? I will add on to what Val just said, because I thought, uh, thought that was great. I think the, the thing that I would add on is, you know, companies really, once they've gone through that process of looking at the proposal and thinking about what those issues might be, start to figure out how they're going to respond. Um, and sometimes it's just setting up kind of a, a structure, right? Start thinking about who's going to do this, right? And and how are we going to ensure that the the information that we're getting is something that can be audited, something that is, you know, reliable, consistent, um, and that, that is gonna be key uh, for companies to, to really start to unpack, you know, are they ready to meet these new requirements? I agree with both of those. And maybe the only other thing I'd add is, one of the things I heard suggested this week is the sample footnote or sample disclosure. So if you were implementing this and put aside the fact, can you get the information? What would it even look like for your company? Because that is going to fairly quickly tell you what things are most important to you. And so that's something else. I think if someone's trying to figure out where do I go with 500 plus pages, all right, start picking these requirements and, and seeing what you have. So again, definitely a, a huge amount to think about and we'll come back with more. But for today, uh, Val, Kyle, thanks so much for joining me. That's our show for today. Join us back here next week for four special episodes where we provide context and then discuss some of the accounting issues stemming from the conflict arising from the Russian government's invasion of Ukraine. And never fear, we're also wrapping up our revenue series with step five, where you'll finally be able to recognize that revenue. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.